0: Perhaps one of the most controversial doctrines in all of Christian theology is the doctrine of predestination. Throughout history, sincere Christians have disagreed on what exactly is meant when the Bible declares that God's people have been predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son. In our interview today, I'm talking with renowned Reformed theologian Robert Letham about predestination, God's sovereignty, free will, and how it all fits together. Robert is Professor of Systematic and Historical Theology at Union School of Theology, and served for over two decades in pastoral ministry. He's written numerous academic articles and books, including a comprehensive systematic theology with Crossway. Let's get started. Well, Dr. Letham, thank you so much for joining me today on the Crossway Podcast.
1: Well, pleased to be here.
0: So you're a well-known professor of systematic and historical theology, and you've written many books on theology and lectured on Christian doctrine around the world for, for decades. And so I was surprised to learn as I was researching a little bit for this interview that you, you studied politics at the university of Exeter in the mid sixties. And so I guess I wonder, were you at that point thinking that you might go into some kind of career in politics?
1: Well, I was active in politics uh, during my teens. I was a member of uh, one of the two major political parties and active uh, in it. So yes, I had certain designs on that, but uh, obviously God had other purposes in store.
0: Mm. Yeah. What was it that that led you, or what were the specific experiences or situations that God used to redirect you towards studying theology?
1: Uh, well, I suppose I just had a conviction that. Uh, I was uh, conviction that I was called to preach the gospel, I suppose, mm. is the, is the base, baseline. Yeah. Did you grow up in a Christian home? Yes, yes. Yes, my parents were long-standing yeah, Christians, yes.
0: And, and what role would you say that theology played in your upbringing?
1: Well, I suppose it, 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 it inevitably plays a, a big role because uh, it affects everything people do. Mm. Um, commitment to church, and all that kind of thing. My father preached uh, quite a bit. Um, that kind of. So, yes, it pervaded, I would say.
0: Would you say that your parents were pretty intentional about catechizing you in doctrine or uh, walking through in an organized way systematic theology?
1: Well, no, they weren't uh, Presbyterian. They weren't reformed. Um, And probably in this country, certainly in England, there's not the kind of uh, intense, systematic um, methodology, if you use that particular word, uh, in upbringing that probably there is in the USA. Mm. Yeah. So obviously
0: today we're planning to discuss the doctrine of predestination, and in particular from a distinctly Reformed or Presbyterian kind of perspective. Uh, I wonder if you could uh, remember back when you f- you think you first encountered and kind of recognized uh, the Reformed doctrine of predestination in your own life.
1: Well, I suppose it's uh, yes, very really for the reading of Scripture you've come across it um, very clearly and in, in the writings of Paul, elsewhere the Gospel of John, and then uh, From that you can detect uh, it right across the whole the whole Bible, Uh, and the sovereignty of God. I mean, God in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, which tells you there is God, and there are all other entities which He brought in, all each of which, in some way or other, He brought into existence. So, therefore. all that there is is utter, utterly dependent upon god hmm.
0: so would you say that your first introduction to this doctrine then was primarily through reading scripture itself it wasn't from a class or from a book that you had read
1: yes absolutely yeah hmm. which is the be- which is certainly the best way in terms of introduction uh, something because you you then see how it's grounded and how it's located in the overall context of biblical revelation, um, rather than um, working it out from logic or from mm-hmm. some kind of uh, um, yeah, some kind of system,
0: and that that's one of the obvious or common critiques that we might hear about systematic theology is that it's this rationalistic approach to thinking about God that is maybe often detached from the witness of Scripture itself. Would you say that's a fair critique of how systematic theology is sometimes done?
1: No, uh, sometimes done, maybe. Uh, certainly in terms of analytic, the, the, the branch which is particularly um, in recent years has been a rise in analytic theology, and there's a danger there. But generally, no, it's complete caricature. Uh, systematic theology effectively is the orderly uh, Order is the orderly understanding of the holistic content of biblical revelation, mm. uh, in both its, um, in a, on a theoretical and meta theoretical level. Uh, it answers questions of what does the Bible teach on this, that, or the other, and how are these things related to each other? What are the interrelationships, and indeed, uh, what are the entailments of those things? What, what, what given given the overall teaching of the Bible on this or that and their con- connections, what does that entail um, a- as a follow-up, uh, as a consequence? So oh. it, it's thinking clearly, consistently, and faithfully about the, the whole of biblical revelation. Um, as I think Augustine originally said, t- taken up by Anselm, it's faith-seeking understanding. And in fact, saving faith—we have saving faith—we will want to understand what that faith is about. So, the the, the argument that systematic theology is something rational is contrary to the, firstly to the way God made us, and secondly to the way God intends us to conduct ourselves as as believers. Mm. Um, systematic theology, in fact, provides the means for the church to defend itself against heresy and false teaching, and to preserve the gospel, and to hand it down to uh, following generations. Mm. Uh,
0: so, with all of that said, and, and embracing all of that as true, do you nevertheless find that you have to be on guard for yourself, even? That you, you don't allow the logical system in which you are doing this theology to override what Scripture clearly
1: says? Well, you can't really set up a logical system that is in any sense independent of scripture. Um, You're in danger there if you do, Um, because probably speaking, uh, if you're engaging in a proper scientific approach to to not only to the Bible, but to, to anything, you need to allow what you are concerned about, what you're investigating to dictate and shape the way you think and the way you uh, follow follow it through. So consequently, uh, systematic theology is and should be, uh, as I say, the the thoughtful, orderly reflection upon the whole of biblical revelation. Using our mind, and God has, uh, Jesus says, we're to love the Lord our God with all our heart, with all our strength, and with all our mind. And to deny that is to deny, ultimately, is to deny the gospel, mm. because God expects us to use our minds. Mm. Paul wrote his letters, as Peter said, something's difficult to understand. He didn't dumb it down. He didn't condescend and speak in a patronizing manner. He said some very difficult things which are are difficult to understand and require extensive thought, if we are to get them uh, clear.
0: Hmm. Well, let's turn now to a doctrine that I think many Christians would say is difficult to understand and and requires careful thinking, Uh, that doctrine of predestination. I wonder if you could just start us off by defining that word uh, in a sentence or two.
1: Well, it's really summed up, we're talking about the Bible, it's summed up in Ephesians chapter 1, that uh, God works all things together according to the counsel of his will. Hmm. In other words, God is the creator, and he continues to sustain and govern his creation. In other words, he's in charge, and there's nothing outside his authority. Otherwise, he would no longer be God. And we'd be in a very dire situation if that was so. Mm. So, in fact, everything, all things, are under his authority. So, if you want to sum that up, it means that God, being sovereign, governs and uh, ordains all that comes to pass in his creation, including in human history.
0: Mm. So, how does that... that- definition of predestination then relate to the doctrine of election?
1: Well, that's a subset of it in the sense that um, election uh, relates to um, salvation, to deliverance from sin, and and more than that, in fact. It means that God chose for himself a people to be in, in union with him. He chose us, Paul says in Ephesians 1, in Christ before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and without blemish before him. So before, prior to creation, prior to the existence of the universe, God determined to um, that he would have a people of his own in relation to him, so it, it has something to do with us. But it also has something relating to God himself. Because he chose us in Christ. Now Christ, uh, it, well in, in Ephesians 1, 3 to 14, there's sort of a recurrent phrase in him, in Christ, in the one he loves. And it covers the entirety of salvation from before the creation right the way through to, de- to Christ redeeming us by his blood and to the future. And so consequently, he chose us in the same Christ who has redeemed us by his blood. And that is Jesus Christ, Jesus of Nazareth, who is one with the Father from eternity, but has uh, taken human nature into union, so he's also man. And so it tells us that before God created, The very first thing he determined was to take human nature into union with himself in Jesus Christ, that he would not, as it were, be God by himself in isolation, but uh, but he would create us uh, to be in Christ united to him. Mm. So I think one of the
0: obvious questions that arises from a discussion of predestination, and in particular, even election, like you've just described, is the question of free will. What are the implications for this doctrine uh, on this idea of free will that we, we all sort of are born uh, with some kind of implicit understanding of what that means? And, and then culturally, there's a lot of talk about uh, free will at times. How would you see those two concepts coming into contact with one another?
1: Well, what, it, um, what has happened, of course, is that humans have um, sinned in, in Adam, <clears throat> um, violated God's uh, requirements, and since God is life itself, that means it's a choice for death. And so, into that thing, God, that we have. Um, God's promise of forgiveness and of eternal life and of union with Jesus Christ. Now the question is, of course, that because of the the choice which Adam made for death, which is exactly what it was, to turn away from God, the wages of sin is death, uh, the human nature has been affected right the way through so that we are by nature averse thoroughly averse to having anything to do with God we want to suppress it so so faith therefore is a gift of the Holy Spirit who enables us to believe now I think the point is this we do not have the ability by nature to trust in Christ and to believe God gives it to us. He he changes the whole orientation of our will, so that we freely, so, uh, freely, um, believe. So it is it is an act of our will, uh, which is of which we f- freely believe. Now some would say, well, what about the others then who don't believe? Isn't that unfair? Well, the point is they are equally freely choosing not to have anything to do with God in accordance with uh, uh, the nature which we all have inherited from Adam and in answer to the fact that whether or not that is fair no one ever is going to be um, left apart from God to face the consequences of it against their will there is no one who will wish or want to have faith in Jesus Christ who will ever be turned away. Hmm. There will be no one, no one, not a single person who, uh, whose will will be violated as a consequence. Because if people, if people live their life apart from God and, and happily do so, it would be a violation of their human rights if, they, if some other vote, um, outcome came. Mm. So in your systematic theology,
0: you emphasize the Trinitarian nature of election. Uh, and I, I guess I, for, for those who are maybe less familiar with the doctrine and even less familiar with the, the, the idea of the Trinity and kind of all of its outworkings in our theology, why would you say it's important to highlight that trinitarian dynamic
1: when it comes to this doctrine? Well, because God is the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit the three are eternally distinct but they are indivisible. There's one indivisible being. Um, So that in everything God does all three, we use the word persons, but it's not to be understood in the same way as human persons, which are self-contained, independent entities. You know, there's you, me, and the, your next door neighbor. Um, we go our own way, we're different ages, and we live different lengths of time. No, they're one indivisible being. So in creation, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The Spirit of God was hovering over the waters, and God said that there be light uh, in, the, in, in the incarnation the father sent the son conceived by the Holy Spirit Mm -hmm. at the crucifixion uh, the son uh, offered himself up through the eternal spirit to the Father you see the Bible have that it's in Scripture Mm -hmm. Um, now if the Holy Spirit was off here doing his own thing and the Father was over there you'd really have three gods they work together inseparably but in their distinctive ways so in election Paul gives thanks to the Father who chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world having already said that he has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places now when Paul uses the word pneuma or its derivatives spirit it's virtually, unless there's overwhelming reasons to the contrary it's invariably a reference in some way or other to the Holy Spirit mm. So you ha- and if you read Ephesians, uh, read Ephesians one and read through Ephesians. For example, just one example. Uh, bearing in mind that the word theos, God, is usually used by Paul and other New Testament writers for the Father, Lord for the Son after His resurrection, and of course the Spirit, Numa. Um, You'll see that underlining everything which Paul says is constant reference to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ and the Holy, and the Holy Spirit. It's it's kind of a sub a kind of substratum of everything he writes there in Ephesians, Colossians, Philippians. Same with Peter um, and so on. Mm. So
0: it's not it's not that the our Trinitarian God was uniquely. Uh, Operating as a Trinity in this one doctrine, it's that He is always, in every case, operating uh, in His triunity with distinct roles, and this is just one where we see it kind of come to the surface in Scripture.
1: Yeah. Well, well yes, the three work together without separation or without division. They are one being, uh, but yet only the only the Son became incarnate, though He was sent by the Father and conceived by the Spirit. Only the Spirit came at Pentecost, that He was sent by the Father and the Son. So there are distinct works attributed to the particular person, but we have to bear in mind that all three are, equal, are equally and integrally involved in each and every one of them, because that's who God is. And He doesn't sort of hive Himself off into various parts to do this, that, or the other
0: you presented a, what some might call a Reformed or even Augustinian perspective on the doctrine of predestination and election, and, and obviously this view has been adopted by many Christians in various traditions and denominations through the centuries. Uh, but I wonder if you could put your Arminian hat on for a minute, and maybe I don't make... I not I have one. <laughs> <laughs> but, but if you did, if you put yeah. that on and, and make the best case you could make for an Arminian perspective on this issue? And then I'd love to hear you put your reformed hat back on and respond to
1: that case. Well, Ar- Arminius actually studied under Theodore Bezer at Geneva, who's, who was the successor to John Calvin, uh, and he modified the doctrine uh, of election. He, I think, he, yes, he went after he, he studied with Beza. He went to Rome and then into the Netherlands and... Uh, became professor at Leiden rather controversially.
0: And you mentioned that it is a way to say that he was very familiar then with Calvin's doctrine. He understood that perspective through, through and through.
1: Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, well, he was an able man. Uh, th- there aren't actually many who follow Arminius today. They're, they're more influenced by Wesley and the Wesleyan tradition um, uh, in, in terms of Arminians. But he, he, he had a, a conditional view of election. He argued that God chose those for salvation whom he foresaw would believe in response to the gospel. So in other words, whereas Calvin, uh, the Reformed in general, Luther as well, and um, Augustine, and, and so forth, that whole trajectory would argue that it is God who foreordained us to salvation in Jesus Christ bearing in mind that he also uh, ordained the means to salvation too that they would hear the preaching of the gospel they'd respond and so on Arminius held that God as it were looked ahead to the future saw who would believe and respond to the gospel and decided to choose them Mm. now that had number of um, ramifications to it. It supposed, for example, that those who heard the gospel and, and responded would have in themselves some kind of residual power and ability and inclination to believe, whereas the Reformed following Augustine held that the effect of sin is such that naturally Uh, um, that the natural person is actually resistant to the gospel Uh, it also implied that God does not so much choose anyone to salvation as he rubber stamps those who choose him Mm. he foresees we choose him rather than he chooses us and we by his grace respond and moreover because it's conditional it raises questions which arminius and his immediate followers the remonstrants uh, felt unable to answer as whether those who believed would actually pers- uh, uh, would actually persevere to the end they said they we can't really decide that mm. and because of that they could not come up with the idea that you could be sure of ultimate salvation, because there is also the danger that a true believer might fall away. Now, as summed up by someone I have I've not been able to trace the origin of this, I know Paul Helm in one of his books quotes it, and I I, I see that it came from previous sources. They are saying that a, a Methodist or, or an Arminian um, knows he knows he's got religion, but is afraid he'll lose it. Whereas a Calvinist knows he can't lose it, but rather doubts whether he actually has it.
0: Mm. Well and so that's a that's a good that raises a good question in that is the the net result of that distinction then really the same, practically speaking, where you know an Arminian is worried they might lose it and they have that lack of assurance, but a Calvinist lacks assurance in the sense of they're not even, they're always questioning, do I even, did I have it to begin with?
1: Well, I think the Arminian position is, it's inherent in the the doctrine, because if election is conditional, so then perseverance becomes inevitably questioned, and you don't really have the theological underpinning to uh, support assurance of final salvation. Um, the problem, which was particularly in, in in reformed circles, was generated by I think a, a rather unhealthy focus upon oneself, because obviously, if we if we try to examine ourselves too much, we'll we'll end up rather um, perplexed and shaken. Hmm. Calvin described it as like plunging into a labyrinth uh, from which there seems to be almost no escape. Because fa- in faith, we trust in Jesus Christ, not in ourselves. Mm. Uh, and we know that what, what his promises are to those who believe. Uh, there's a problem if we try to focus upon our own belief, uh, our own uh, um, understanding and experience of the Holy Spirit, rather than upon Jesus Christ. Mm-hmm. Now, it's important that some aspect of that is done, obviously, because you, you can't have assurance of salvation if you say you believe in Jesus Christ, but you go out, say, and start uh, raping uh, and, and murdering and, and so on and stuff like that. Uh, in other words, if you, if you commit uh, and live in serious sin, it's a direct contradiction of everything which uh, you would profess with your lips. Mm. So there has to be sanctification, there has to be obedience, and so on. And, and it is right that you reflect upon upon that fact. But I mean, the focus, however, is beyond Christ. So it, I, I would think that there is some commonality in that sense, as you point out. But I think that the, the on the one hand the Doubt about whether you will persevere flows from a theological prior theological commitment, whereas the questioning of, your, of whether you are actually a true believer stems from a rather unhealthy uh, I- focus on introspection. So some theologians and pastors through
0: the centuries have argued that while election to salvation is an active choice on God's part, Reprobation is is a passive passing over, uh, with the implication being, I think, that God doesn't actively choose people to be lost in the same way that he chooses people to be saved.
1: Do, do you think that's a valid distinction? Um, uh, probably is, yes, because there's a, a kind of tension there, and an antinomy, as it's sometimes called, uh, because we know that God does not desire the death of the wicked. But rather that he turn from his wickedness and live. Um, Peter says, God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. So there is a desire uh, for these people, uh, or for such people, for repentance. But on the other hand, we have to bear in mind Jesus uh, in the Gospels, Matthew 11, for example. He gives thanks to the Father. He says, I thank you, O Father, that you have hidden these things from the wise and the understanding and have revealed them to babes. These things were evidently the things relating to what he had done, his miracles, his signs, and what he taught, which the people in in the previous passage he rebukes um, the various places in Israel for their unbelief, they had rejected it. He'd rejected him, though they should have known him because they had the background of, of God's revelation in the Old Testament. He'd hidden these things from the widest understanding and revealed them to babes. Uh, so there is a sense that um, it, 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 it's difficult for us, and I think we have to be very cautious here, um he certainly did not bring about a situation which would change their hearts and minds so that they were responsive. Mm. But it's their responsibility for it, and they are accountable to him for their, un- for their unbelief and their rejection. Mm. But it's, it's not a, something for which he stands by with his, you know, wringing his hands... Uh, in, in despair, he gives thanks to the Father for concealing things from these things and revealing them to babes. Mm. And then, almost in the same breath, he goes on to say, "Come unto me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest." In this, exactly the same speech utterance, mm. Matthew eleven twenty-five to thirty. All these elements are brought together and combined in the the words of Jesus himself. And of course, while they are virtually impossible for us to get our heads around, they will forever be an antinomy, which is a a kind of tension between what is apparently contradictory, but in fact is resolved in the mind of God, And, of course, in the words of Jesus himself.
0: Mm. And that's one of the things that I personally have grown to love and appreciate about, quote-unquote, uh, Reformed theology, is that it, it does recognize and even appreciate and value the the tensions of our faith and the the mystery that can sometimes be at play. I, I wonder if we could actually dig into one uh, counter-example to that, where... Uh, what would what would a so-called hyper-Calvinistic view of predestination look like, where we don't want to embrace this mystery?
1: Well, for example, I quoted Second Peter chapter three. Um, a, a hyper-Calvinist there who who, uh, who would say that when Peter says God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance, he's referring to any of his elect.
0: Mm. So they read in that concept that Peter's not really bringing up.
1: That's right, because they would argue that to say that God is not willing that anyone should perish, Adolf Hitler, name it, next-door neighbor who's nice and kind but is an atheist, um, is contradictory to the doctrine of election, logically. Now, the question is there is a case where logic trumps Biblical revelation. Mm. Uh, you really have to ha- hold these things in, in both of them. I mean, Spurgeon, I said that you, you believe in uh, sovereign election, you believe in human responsibility equally. Um, chosen in him before the foundation of the world. Come unto me all that weary and heavy laden. Um, those two things hold together. Mm. But we f- may find them difficult... From our own perspective, to reconcile them, uh, but they are both equally to be proclaimed. Mm.
0: Well, maybe as a final question, I wonder if you could uh, put on your pastoral hat for a moment. You you served in pastoral ministry in an OPC church for over two decades, and so I'm sure you've had many conversations with parishioners about these topics. Uh, What would you say to the person listening right now who who has heard all that you've said and who who acknowledges what scripture clearly teaches on this, and yet still would have to confess that this feels like a difficult doctrine. It feels it feels scary. It feels like a different different picture of God than what they're used to seeing. And it maybe even to them right now makes God feel almost like a capricious monster, perhaps. What would you say to that person as a pastor?
1: Well, I'd say a number of things. Firstly, that if you open your Bible and go to the passages where it speaks of election, it's always, almost always, there to bring reassurance, and it's there to bring thanksgiving to God. It's not designed to be the basis of introspection or speculation. So, in the, in the very passage Ephesians one, which we've referred to, you know, he said. Uh, he he says um, thanks be to God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ and several times in the paragraph it to the praise of his glory Uh, so the whole purpose is to produce assurance and confidence the second thing is to look at the character of God as it's revealed in scripture he is faithful loving just and good Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness, despite the fact that all the various promises God had given to him were not yet realized and were not to be during his lifetime. But he believed God because he knew who he was, what he is like, he is faithful and true and loving. Um, and, And then you'd have to say that how can you not believe since Christ is so central? The doctrine of election has to be understood is election in Christ, election in union with him. And so right at the heart of it is Jesus Christ, the same Christ who died upon the cross for our sins. So it's a matter of entrusting ourselves into the hands of God who promised and performed what he promised Mm. and has promised us that he will keep us to the very end. And then we reflect too upon the fact that of our own sin um, we uh, ourselves had absolutely no power nor inclination uh, to believe. We could not uh, maintain ourselves in that position, but he has given us the assurance that he will uh, through thick and thin, through uh, bad times as well as good, uh, and, um, and the fact that God is the creator. He is the sovereign creator of the universe, who is described in scriptures, as beautiful and glorious uh, and loving and who has purposes which are far greater than we can imagine mm. for us. So you'd have to place it in the whole context of the whole revelation of God, which brings us back to systematic theology. Mm. You, by lifting particular texts out of the Bible uh, we, we we get as one I think person says a text without a context as a pretext uh, but you, you end up with a, a, a distortion mm. um, you, you see it in terms of the character of God the centrality of Christ our own helplessness and need and the promise of um, of, of of salvation promise of being kept mm. by the power of God through faith
0: mm. well, what a good word for us and uh, a wonderful reminder of why not just any individual doctrine, but all of them seen together in the light of Scripture is so valuable for us. Thank you, Dr. Lethem, for your, mm-hmm. your time today. Sure. That was Robert Lethem on Predestination. For more, be sure to check out his book with Crossway, Systematic Theology. Pick up your copy of the book for 30% off directly from Crossway by visiting crossway.org slash plus. That's crossway.org slash plus. For more interviews like this, subscribe to the Crossway Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast player. If you enjoyed this episode, leave us a review. That helps us spread the word about the show. Crossway is a not-for-profit Christian ministry that exists solely for the purpose of proclaiming the truth of God's word through publishing gospel-centered content. Visit us today at crossway.org.